Hello! Welcome to episode two of Soccer Better about LGBT issues in soccer. If you're new, I'll explain. When we think of a dictionary definition of soccer, we think soccer, a verb, the act of playing, supporting, managing, or researching the beautiful game. For example, when we think analytically about the world and the beautiful game, we realize there are many ways we can all soccer better. We're Liz and Laura Ellen. Between the two of us, we have way too many years of graduate education to be helpful. So we decided to journey into the critical thinking and analytical side of all things soccer. Join us as we discover how we can all soccer better. Liz, welcome to episode two of Soccer Better. We came back. We did it. Woo. <laughs> We made it through the first one, and now we're here for a second one. This one was a lot harder. Yes, I know. There's, so, I feel like we found, I mean, we learned a lot from doing the first one, so yes. I think that's part of it, and we got some great feedback, and uh, now we are doing the second one, and I guess I should say, happy Pride Month. Here we are. Here we are. It's Pride Month. We got all the rainbows everywhere. Yay! So many different flags, so many different colors, celebrating different groups, um, so today we're going to talk about LGBT athletes, specifically LGBT soccer players, which I think is super exciting. I think it's a topic that at least I haven't seen a lot of um, research about, but I also haven't seen a lot of kind of mainstream media coverage other than maybe the, the one-off feature story. Right. It's mostly like, oh, somebody came out and, and that's what we talk about for a little bit. And people go, yeah. That happened. Yay. Right. So I guess we should start with some uh, just kind of description. So we're all on the same page because I think that's really important. So we're going to be using LGBT throughout this episode. And so uh, that means lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. And so we just want to say that we recognize that there are so many other ways that people identify their sexual orientation and their gender identity. Um, So... For our purposes of our conversation today, we're just focusing on these four groups because that's really what the research discusses. But we, I did just want to say, and I know you did also, Liz, that we totally recognize that there are so many different ways and we are excited and respectful of all of those. And researchers are also super um, cognizant of those things too. And they recognize the need to talk about um, non-binary and non-gender conforming, um, asexual and other types of folks um, in their research. Uh, and they recognize that of a limitation as a limitation of their research. And we could not agree more. Yes, they definitely acknowledge that in all of their research. Um, but just for simplicity and because it's what we were reading and in order to be accurate to the research, we're going to use LGBTQ. Yes. Um, and so, again, because of the so much information we found, we mentioned that there are these kind of feature news stories that are out there, but we're just really focusing on the research and research studies that we found. Um, and so, again, you may listen to this and you're like, well, what about this story about so-and-so or this... Yes, we understand, but we're here to talk about the research. That's our purpose. Um, and so, yeah, we're really excited about that. And Liz, but I know, yes, I all those say, other, all those other comments though, like what about and what about? Why don't you get at us on Twitter? Or you can even email us if you don't want to be real public about it. We would love to get into all of those depths. Like we're not saying we don't want to talk about those things. It's just. I don't know if you want to be here for a month listening to us <laughs> because that's definitely how the, the research felt like it was going. Oh, for sure. Um, I also want to say that the research, 
research methods, um, they were forced to use very distinct categories. So it's men versus women, religious versus non-religious, your educational status. And we know that all of these categories don't really encapsulate you know, your whole personality. They don't encapsulate everything that you know. They don't even cover all of the different kinds of diversity that there is out there. Um, and so these are the phrases that we're going to use. And this is the kind of comparisons that we're going to make because it's how the research was done and it's how you make something scientific. I love all of you, but please, please don't at me and say, not every Christian, not every PhD person I know, not every man, not every woman. I know, I, I know, I get it. It, it. I'm not saying that just because these are the binary terms that we're using, that it encapsulates every single person. I'm saying this is what we needed to, this is how we need to discuss it because we are talking about research papers. Um, so with that said, I think it's time to uh, soccer better. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so hopefully as we progress into these episodes, our readers will understand all of that and maybe we'll have shorter and shorter kind of introductory statements like that. But for the purposes of these, I do think it is really important just to acknowledge that we know what's going on um, out in the world and we also understand the limitations of research. So we see both sides. So what I want to do, and and as I was, as we were both preparing, but f as I was preparing for this, I came across this paper, and I thought it just really helped to kind of frame this whole conversation. So I want to spend a little bit of time and talk about it. So George Cunningham, who's a researcher at Texas A&M, um, wrote this piece in 2012, and I just found it to be really helpful. So I want everyone to think of three concentric circles or circles inside of other circles. And so if we think of the center circle, so the smallest one, we have micro level factors. So these are individual level factors that influence the role of sexual diversity in sports. So these in could include an individual's sexual identity or their salient identities, uh, which, which uh, for the purposes of this means, you know, so their race and their education status and, and they're also their sexual identity and gender and um, sexual orientation, all those different things. And then also these other factors that we've talked about already. So um, what he lists is like sex. So um, th it, when we think on the binary, uh, we think men and women. And then we have, so that's our smallest circle. Then we have our middle circle and he calls these meso level factors. So these are factors that happen at a group level. So this could be leader beliefs such as um, the coach. Um, this could be organizational culture. This could be group support. So how does a team support an individual um, uh, uh, about uh, certain things, and in this case, sexual diversity. And so those, that's the meso-level factors. Those are middle-level factors. And then there's the outer circle, which is the macro-level factors. And these are big-scale things which within which everything else takes place. So these could include cultural norms and institutional practices. And so while you may be sitting there thinking, okay, great, so what? So many circles. But what I really liked about this model is that all of those things interact with each other. So you could have factors at the macro level, such as a cultural norm shift or um, a cultural evolution, which could then change something at the meso level, like group support. And then that group support will, can change 
change well-being for the individual level of the athlete um, and maybe some of their identities that that they're dealing with. And so I thought that was just like a really nice way. And, and it's this beautiful paper um, that I think really helps to kind of give a really good overarching framework for how to have this conversation, how to talk about this body of research. And especially how to think about yourself within this body of research. So this isn't just you know, academics who are going out and who are gathering the numbers and sending out surveys. This really involves each and every one of us and that you, everything that you experience leads to you acting in a certain way. And because of the way that you act, you are having an impact on individuals around you. So none of us are acting in a vacuum. And as the world becomes more connected, especially with social media, you know, you post your pictures, you post your ideas, you post your chants, you're not, you can't be lulled into thinking that just because I'm one person, you know, in Pittsburgh talking to, you know, whatever the three people who listen to this right now, that I don't matter, that my stuff doesn't matter. Like, you have to realize you're a big deal. Like, everyone is a big deal because you would touch and influence so many people around you. So it's not only how you act out, like it's especially how you act out. So if you do a good deed, you know, that trickle down theory. So like, if you can change a thought process and put forth positivity, there's a trickle down theory there. Yeah, exactly. And so um, anyway, so, you know, and he, um, Cunningham wrote this paper within the context of sexual diversity in sports. Um, And so I found that to be really helpful as we really think about all these other um, research studies that talk about this. So let's start with kind of big picture things. So what do we actually know about um, kind of this topic broadly? And so we found a poll um, conducted by Gallup in, in 2017, which found approximately 4.5% of the U.S. population identifies as uh, as on the LGBTQ spectrum, which I thought that was really interesting. Um, and so, so, you know, Gallup puts out this poll, so approximately... 4.5%, which I would honestly guess is a little low. Um, that's just kind of my, my, I don't know. I think there's a little bit of a bias there, but um, anyway, that's what they found. Um, but okay, so then, so that's kind of the population at large in the United States. And then let's think about LGBT athletes. Um, so we really, I really, I, I tried really hard. I did a lot of searching. <laughs> I like searched in my university's library, all kinds of things, and couldn't find anything. And maybe I missed it. And so if I missed it, someone please tell me because I I want to be corrected. Um, But one of the studies that we read was a 2011 study by Ensign and colleagues um, that found that 58% of NCAA athletic trainers work with at least one athlete who identifies as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. And so to me, like, certainly that's not saying that, like, 58% of athletes are, like, lesbian, gay, or bisexual. But I think what that does tell me is that there are, it it kind of gives, like, an indication of how many athletes there may be and just that the the wide diversity and that they're kind of, LGBT athletes are all over the country and they're not just kind of located in a couple places because athletic trainers are, most athletic trainers are working with um, athletes who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. 
Yeah, I think it's really important. I agree. It's probably not that 58% of our athletes are LGBT. I mean, maybe they are because I don't think it's something that anyone's ever asked. I don't think the survey has gone out to athletes to see how many identify. But if that many trainers um, are coming in contact with these individuals, that means like the coaches and fans, like if you just extrapolate beyond you know, our trainers, who else is coming in contact with these individuals, you're probably coming into contact with these same individuals. You probably know somebody. And you can't say that that, and this is one of my pet peeves, you can't say that that one athlete, that one gay athlete you know, is different than all of the other gay athletes that you don't know. That's not how it works. So you have to take you know, take that knowledge you have and be willing to to use it in the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. And I, and again, like I think, you know, this was, you know, just the sample that they had. These were just the respondents to the survey that they had. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about um, their survey um, coming up here. Uh, but then I tried to figure out um, and I spent again, spent quite a bit of time, um, you know, I probably could have been or probably should have been doing other things, but here we are. Um, I tr- was trying to figure out, like, is there some kind of number about how many, how many LGBT soccer players there are, like, in the U.S., in the world? Um, and I could not find any number. I found a couple of, like, lists, like, here are 14 famous people, or here are, like, the 20 right. <laughs> male soccer players who have ever, like, come out um, as gay. And, and I'm like, okay, well, that's not really helpful. That's not really telling me anything because there's so much bias, uh, in that. Um, but, um, so, so anyway, all of that to say that there's like not (laughs) great research out there about LGBT soccer players. And so a lot of our research and and what we're going to talk about recognizes, um, how hard it is um, and how difficult it is both professionally, but then also personally. And sometimes it can be uh, depending where they are. And this is, you know, as we think about the larger cultural issues, you know, in some cultures, it can, it's incredibly dangerous still in 2019 uh, to come out uh, as LGBT. And so um, not only for just people in general, but then also for professional soccer players. Um, And the research we found that finds that this tends to be true, especially for men uh, and male soccer players to be openly gay. Um, And so, so anyway, so I don't really have a good number. Although again, if somebody like finds this and can send it to us like please tweet it to us please let us know because I really struggled I was like really looking and then I'm like well I'm not just like counting up all these lists because that's not effective either so right um, and to be fair I don't think that there was any sport where they could get any kind of great conclusive information and a lot of the information was and a lot of the research revolved around former players discussing their experiences and former players taking these different you know, questionnaires and tests, because as a former player, they were willing to say, these were my experiences. This is how I came out. This is how my teammates knew. This is how people reacted. This is, you know, the things that worked for me or didn't work for me when I needed support. So I think even getting any kind of current numbers for any sport would be incredibly difficult. And as much as someone who has been doing a bunch of research on this, and I'm like, oh man, that'd be great to know. I don't really know if that's a poll that I really want out there. Like the researcher part of me wants to be completely analytical and gather this information. But the human part of me is like, eh, 
it do I need to know that to make a difference? And I'm not sure that the answer is yes. I'm not sure how helpful it is. You're more of a researcher than me. So maybe you could enlighten me when we get off of the air because we don't want to <laughs> get too sidetracked. But I, I like I'm really I'm torn between these two things. I feel really awful reading this research and then having to reiterate a thousand times. We could only talk to former players. Only former players would answer us because of the stigma that these some of these individuals um in these sur- these research surveys they wouldn't meet anywhere except for in a you know a very nondescript totally random you know library office like they made it look like a like a study break so it was it was just kind of disheartening to see that that's where some of this research had to take place as opposed to they couldn't just do it on the field or they couldn't do it in someone's home so we don't have the information for any sport and and that part of it kind of really weighed on me about how they had to gather that information yeah and I think um you know certainly from a research perspective right there are so many questions out there that we want answers to and I think you've highlighted many of them um But there's also an important part to research, and that's research ethics, and that's making sure not only that you as a researcher are behaving in an ethical way, but then that you are also ensuring the safety and well-being of your participants. And so I think that's, again, just, you know, reiterating your point, that's really where, unfortunately, you know, in the world we live in, in, you know, the current day, you know, we can't really just say, okay, well, we want to find out all this information uh, because it may not be safe for people. Um, they may not, and they may not be ready, which is which is totally okay. Um, so, so just to to you know agree with you and and just say from a research perspective, it's not just about the research questions; it's also about the well being of participants. Um, and I think that's really important as well. Okay, so let's um, transition a little bit here and talk about um, an overview of LGBT issues in sports. Um, and and I'll start off here. So the study that I mentioned a little bit ago, Ensign and Sign and colleagues from 2011 looked at the atti- the attitudes of 964 heterosexual athletic trainers. And so they were only looking at heterosexual athletic trainers. Uh, there were some. Um, they did an electronic survey and there were some um, participants who responded um, that they were that they identified as homosexual or asexual and so they decided not to include them because they were really interested in looking at the attitudes of heterosexual athletic trainers and kind of the premise for this study is that the NCAA has um, done a lot of things which we're going to talk about some of these marketing and PR um, initiatives that are out there uh, to really uh, be more inclusive and be more supportive of LGBT athletes in the NCAA. Um, but there's really no guidance for athletic trainers. And so um, the researchers really found that um, this, they hoped that this would be um, a, a good first step in really creating a foundation to figure out, okay, what are the attitudes of athletic trainers and then how can we build on that? So so they had some like pretty interesting findings here and, and I have, uh, I just listed four of them. Um, I think this article was, was super easy, uh, interesting and, and easy to read. So I would encourage you to read it if you're interested. Um, so, uh, these things like really weren't surprising and very much aligned with kind of a lot of literature that exists outside of sports. Um, but males tended to have a less positive attitude toward LGBT athletes than, um, females did, uh, when it comes to athletic trainers. And I know Liz, some of your research, uh, also uh, some of the research that you read also, uh, aligned with that. 
Yeah, so there was a dissertation about recruiting and retaining LGBT athletes. It was completed by um, Chanel Barber and her colleagues, and it basically said that the same thing. You know, males were found to be much more negative towards LGBT athletes. And then Cunningham, who we discussed um, earlier, extrapolated that the part of this was because when you talk about a gay male, you give him feminine attributes, such as you know, just different things. And um, they're not always things that are found to be positive in your athletes. And um, on the on the flip side of that, when they would talk about uh, lesbians, they found that they would give them more masculine attributes. And so when you're in a sports setting, they thought that was much more positive. So specifically, males not only were less positive towards the LGBT community and athletes in general, but they were the worst about gay males. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is something that that came up several times um, in uh, in the research that we found. I think some other uh, findings that I found to be particularly interesting. So uh, those so respondents with no family or close friends who identify as LGB. uh, So they looked at lesbian, gay and bisexual. They didn't include transgender uh, in their study, which they did note as a as a limitation. Uh, They have less positive attitudes toward uh, LGB uh, uh, athletes, um, athletic trainers who provide more care, which I found this to be so interesting, right? Um, so I'll just, I'll just say it and then we can talk about it. Um, so (laughs) athletic trainers who tend to provide more care for, um, more, uh, LGB athletes tend to have more positive attitudes towards those, um, athletes. Um, now all of that to say, um, they did find that, uh, 86.4% of their respondents. So again, these are heterosexual, um, athletic trainers, both male and female, um, did have a positive or somewhat positive attitude toward lesbian, gay, and bisexual athletes. So this isn't, you know, all of this isn't to say that, you know, there's like a lot of like hate or like uh, poor attitudes out there, but um, there were kind of these indicators. Um, and so this is where, you know, we were talking about earlier this like male versus female, like these different like characteristics of people. It's not to say that all men, right, have negative attitudes, but it is to say that being male tends, right, it tends to to relate or it correlates with, it doesn't predict, but it correlates, oh my gosh, we should have a whole episode about correlation versus causation. But anyway, look at us tends, go right off the rails. There we go. <laughs> um, it tends to correlate um, with having less positive attitudes. And, and so I think like these things, which were really interesting to me, but these things talking about having a, f- a family member or a close friend or providing care, like to me, this is about exposure, right? This is about having right. a personal connection with someone who identifies as lesbian, gay, or bisexual in the case of this study. And so as I read this study, I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is just about people knowing other people. This is about personal relationships and personal connections. And I think that was the thing that uh, really struck me as, as I was reading through this. Liz, what were some of your thoughts? No, I completely agree. It's definitely about exposure. Um, and a lot of times it's just about knowing how to start the conversation or how to make it more relatable. So even though like this most recent part that we talk about, our male friends may be feeling, our heterosexual male friends may be feeling kind of targeted. I like, I don't see it as targeting you and saying you're definitely the problem. But for me, it's like when I see a heterosexual male who does have a problem, 
I wonder, do you have any relationships? And I will, every time, I will go straight to talking about Josh's moms. So Josh's mom is a lesbian. Her and her partner have been together forever. They're wonderful. They're my favorites. I call them the moms with an S because they're both my moms. And so when I talk about them, I just call them the moms and we'll have a conversation. And then when they come to an event, they're like, oh, there's two of them. But because I said all of these things and they know about their mom and, you know, Josh's mom and their mom do similar things and they take care of them in similar ways. If they didn't have this connection before, all of a sudden they have this connection, not only with someone like me that they know, but they have this connection with like, oh, moms are moms, whether or not it's my mom or moms with an S because there are two of them for a single and single person. So it's, it's so much about those connections and, and being willing to meet people where they are sometimes like you don't always have to be like well you know whatever you're a a white girl who likes pumpkin spice and so I'm definitely going to make (laughs) assumptions about you and talk about Ugg boots and do you know what I mean like but I I am a white girl who likes lattes and maybe you can meet me and we can talk about coffee and whatever that leads to do you know what I mean like sometimes you have to meet people where they are yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think uh, just for uh, those who are new to our show, Liz is, or Josh is Liz's husband. Uh, so that's who Josh is. Uh, oh, yeah. I'll talk about him a lot because I like that kid. Oh, so nice. Oh. Okay. Um, so another study that I found interesting, I, I just like jumped in there. There was no transition. Sorry. Uh, so, fine. but another study I found interesting uh, took an international perspective. So Pedro and colleagues uh, in 20, published this study in 2017, um, and it examined attitudes towards sexual diversity, uh, which Liz, I know you and I both really enjoy that uh, term. Um, oh, I think it's, it's just the so best. In- I think it's my new favorite. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 what I like about it is that it's, it's, um, it's short, but kind of all encompassing. And, and I, and I, and I, anyway, I like that. Um, uh, so it looked at attitudes, um, towards sexual diversity of participants. So people who participated, uh, in formalized and non-formalized, um, sports. So again, they did not say like, oh, they participated in soccer, although perhaps, um, Anyway, but they looked at folks in the United Kingdom and Spain. So I would like to think that many of the people in Spain were playing soccer, but who knows? Um, So they did an electronic survey um, of these participants. And so, again, I found this study actually, like, particularly interesting. And um, I'm going to tie it back to that Cunningham piece I referred to at the beginning in thinking about these um, circles. So they found three uh, groups of people. So they found low tolerance people, partial tolerance people, and high acceptance people. So, uh, or, or groups of people. So there was a low tolerance group, a partial tolerance group, and a high acceptance group. So I think the low tolerance and the high acceptance groups, those are pretty self-explanatory. What was interesting to me was that the partial tolerance group, so um, folks who were uh, So they looked at two different measures. They looked at tolerance and acceptance. So this partial tolerance group had like relatively high levels of tolerance, but they had low levels of acceptance, which was um, in contrast to the low tolerance group, which were low in both categories or the high tolerance group, which was high in both categories. There was like an inverse relationship there. Um, But this partial tolerance group was entirely made up of respondents from Spain which I found that to be so interesting, particularly because, again, in reading that Cunningham piece and thinking about these circles, 
um, I was like, oh, it's a cultural thing. And um, Pedra and, and colleagues like talk about that this is a cultural component and, and they um, hypothesize, you know, again, for future research that they hypothesize that this probably has to do with, um, you know, what's happening culturally in Spain and how culturally in Spain, uh, sexual diversity looks different than sexual diversity in, in the UK. Um, so Liz, what were some of your thoughts? I love that, like, I think this was my favorite research one to read because when they got to that partial tolerance, they're like, and then all of a sudden we had a third group and we had to figure out what happened. <laughs> and we, and I think that's great when a researcher goes in and I mean, you don't know for sure where you're going to end up. Um, they knew that they were probably going to have people who were okay with uh, sexual diversity and people who were not okay with it. I don't know that they quite expected to have all their two factors be so disconnected in a third group. I think that they really thought that the two factors, the the tolerance and acceptance, which are two completely different things, were going to um, be very correlated to each other. And they found that they were really two completely different factors that were they were influenced by so many things in some somebody's life. And I think I would have thought the same thing. I would have thought that this this non-rejection and this this tolerance, as that scale went up, it would have naturally led to acceptance. And I was very surprised when it didn't. Right, yeah. No, and I, I totally agree. And, and again, I think some of these, uh, you know, I do a lot of reading and you do a lot of reading too. And so I think sometimes uh, it's, easy not to write to write poorly and it's hard to write well and so I thought this article did a good job of kind of telling the story of how they were like okay we were expecting these two groups and then we found this third group and we weren't exactly sure what to do with them and they had this quote which I thought just (laughs) was just so interesting and just it really stood out to me and it said Spain seems to exist within an intermediate stage of pseudo inclusivity Um, And I just, and that seemed to really like encompass kind of a lot of what they were talking about, but this idea of pseudo inclusivity and, and then, you know, as we continue our conversation, but in what other circumstances, and especially when we begin talking about soccer, um, are there instances in soccer where we have this pseudo inclusivity, where we want to, you know, present this perception of being inclusive and being tolerant and accepting but in reality, you know, there's um, there's like an inverse relationship and we may be tolerant, but we may not be accepting. And so, like, what are the consequences of that? So right. for me, and this, I think, oh, go ahead. sorry, no, I think the way that they brought it back to people who who want to be overly politically correct. And that's like they said, these in, in Spain, there was a lot of I will say the right thing. I will be politically correct when I provide you with my answers. But when I take the survey, which I'm going to talk about in a second, because I found this fascinating. Um, when I take the survey and I answer these questions, I actually don't feel that way. I'll say it, but I don't mean it. So, um, and it got me thinking about people who, I, I'm not against being politically correct. I'm not against not being offensive. I, I am an offensive person as a general concept, just because I like to talk and I like to talk fast. So I apologize for that. But I really thought it was it was interesting to see how they brought that back to people who are just very politically correct and they, like they say the right thing, but it hasn't it hasn't sunk it in for them. And I think that goes back to they probably haven't been exposed to something that connects it back to their life or to someone who can have a conversation about why do you feel that way? Do you know what I mean? Like why do you think that 
um, lesbians are better at sports than, than, you know, heterosexual females, you know, like, do you just think that they're stronger? Like, so, and you can bring that back to them, like stereotypes that you would have thought about them or that you might think they might think about you as a person. So I just think that's, again, it's about bringing up that conversation. But my favorite part of this, this whole, this specific research paper was there is an accurate scale for attitudes towards gays and lesbians. And I never would have anticipated that, that there's like a question, like, what is it? 10 questions. It's not even that many questions. It's like, there's these number of questions you answer on a scale from one to five, and it accurately predicts how tolerant you are towards gays and lesbians. I was absolutely fascinated (laughs) because, I mean, I am all for the research and I know that they got a lot of input, but for a lot of this, I thought it was going to be strictly soft science, that these were going to be, I mean, feelings is the wrong word, but since I'm not a researcher, it's what I, what comes to mind that I want to say that these were going to be people's feelings when they answered these questions. And even if they did just yes and no, um, because they wanted to get away from that soft science, they wanted it to be a harder science, that it still wasn't going to be something where, where you could have you know, these percentages. And this, this paper really brought it home to me that these questions have been so honed and that they could get it within like a 10th of a percentage. It was amazing. So I just, I really thought that because of that, it, um, it led me to better understand that this could be a hard science and that I needed to take some of these things to heart, whether or not I ever thought about them, because they do influence how we are treating the LGBT community in sports. Yeah. And I mean, that just, uh, just makes my little nerd heart very happy. Um, No, and I think it is really important. And I think that's, you know, and, and you bring up you know, I think there's so, right, there are so many intersections here, but when we think about research methods, when we think about how research is being done, the the questionnaires and the scales that are being used in these studies, like whether they're reliable, whether they're valid, um, and whether those studies have been conducted to make sure they're reliable and valid um, in the population that you're looking for. I mean, that is so critical to ensuring that you're measuring what you want to measure, which is validity, and then reliability. You're measuring it accurately every single time you're you're doing it, um, and so so yeah, I think that is so important, and I think it also gives increased um, credence to the results of this study, and right, it like leads us to really not only think about these ideas of acceptance and tolerance, but then. Like, how can we build on that to really um, leverage what we now know and how we can then begin to think about how culture influences both tolerance and acceptance um, to then, you know, create a way to move forward. But before we talk about moving forward, and we, we have a bunch of other stuff to talk about, but I know you have this study, Liz, that, that you're excited to talk about. And so I want to hear all about it. Yeah. So um, Barber and Company, as I've mentioned before, um, their research just like we're going to go clear all the way back to your concentric circles and how it is so important to protect the the health and mental well-being so they focus on student athletes but I would say athletes in general so a something that is not in the the research study is we should normalize getting mental health it is something that everyone should normalize and it doesn't have to be formal but I don't think there's anything wrong with making it formal it just needs to be much more normal but they did emphasize that um, it's really important that these um, these campuses 
they needed to work to remove activities that made the athletes feel as if they couldn't be themselves. So one of the biggest examples was prayer before the game. I don't think there's anything wrong with some of the athletes deciding that they wanted to pray together. But when you are forced to pray together with your coach, and it is something that is not optional, a lot of the LGBT community has a very strained relationship with um, with faith. Because, I mean, if you if you grow up going to church or you grow up going to the mosque and or you grow up going to any of these things, then you decide to come out and that you're really going to live your life and live who you are that doesn't always conform with what you were taught and how you grew up. And it doesn't conform with what your community thinks. So just having to face that not only when you're at those religious activities that you choose to be a part of, but now you have to face it on game day or you have to face it at the end of all of your practices. So just like removing that as a requirement. It's fine if the students want to do it, but you don't have to push it on everybody that, oh, like, why are you sitting over there? Get in the circle. Um, And then giving student athletes the greatest opportunity to feel safe. You need to show them that you support them. So these can both be active things that you can have training sessions about inclusivity and anti-bias training um, and just making those very normal. And then also passive things that you can do. So having safe space decals and stickers that go up on uh, places where students may want to get services or if you want to be a coach and put up a sticker and say this is a safe place to talk. Just those expressions of support, um, they lead to a more open environment so that people can have honest discussions about where they are and maybe what's bothered them or what the team can do to be more supportive of not only themselves, but maybe they know about a teammate who isn't out and is feeling like really stressed out because of some event. So I think that you know, making sure that you're doing these things brings it back to that holistic view of you have to take care of the big picture so that you can drill down to the individual feelings and make sure that these individuals feel like they are um, able to live their best lives. Yeah, and I, I was like thrilled uh, to, to hear about this study because I think it is just like so important and not only you know, so often we hear about these, like, active things, like these trainings or these campaigns, and, and we'll talk about that uh, coming up here in a bit. But, you know, we hear about all these things, but it, really that's not enough, right? It's not enough to just have, like, okay, you know, I think we've all, you know, maybe we've all had, like, work seminars or, like, you know, we're rolling out a new system at work. Let's, like, go to a training or whatever or, you know, whatever that is. And so that that active training may be helpful. But then if you don't have someone that you can constantly go to to get that, you know, continuing ongoing support to help deal with the issue or deal with the thing, whatever you learned in that training, then, like, what's the point, right? Um, And so there's this idea that it's not just the the big trainings or the big seminars or whatever it is but it's this ongoing support and holistic ongoing support so not only from coaches or people in leadership positions but then also from teammates um and and i think that's really uh really important as well have we gotten too serious for you is it time for a break we're we're holding our chins on our hands because you know i don't know why anyways let's take a break real quick deep breath in 
That was out. I don't. Okay. I'm so, so bad at this. <laughs> Laura Ellen's not good with directions. So take some time to wrap your head around what we've said. We'll take some time to think about what we said. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to talk about Roughneck Scarves. I will hereby proclaim myself as a scarf snob. I've gotten called out for this before. If, if you want to trade a scarf with me, I'm all in, but it better be a bar scarf and not those silk scarves. I know that I support a team in the middle of the summer. I know it's 98 degrees and it makes no sense to have a bar scarf on my neck instead of a silk scarf, but don't bring me your silk scarf. Um, Based on that, I really appreciate the attention to detail and the quality of product that Roughneck Scarf provides in their their product. Uh, I've gotten a lot of Roughneck Scarves from other supporters groups. I'm, I'm willing to trade the Roughneck Scarves for a Steel Army Scarf, so keep that in mind if you see me at a game. Also, we need to mention how incredibly thankful we are for the Beautiful Game Network. Not only have they given us a platform to talk about these topics, but they've actively encouraged us to create something that is uniquely ours. BGN has become quite the group of podcasts and writers, and we are grateful that they support us um, being academically minded, and they just let us be ourselves. Also, please note, there's going to be Soccer Better merch coming your way very soon. Woohoo! It's going to be great! Okay, do you think they processed enough? I think so. I think I processed enough. I think I breathed in and out a couple times, so... Okay, go. Okay, great. Um, Okay, so let's try... We've talked about um, LGBT issues broadly in sports, and so let's try and think about it a little bit more within the context of soccer. And so I know we said we were going to focus on soccer articles, but I found this um, 2014 uh, news article uh, by John Amachi uh, from BBC Sports, and it kind of stood out to me because I think it really does highlight a lot of the things that we've talked about thus far. So toxic or toxic. Wow, I can't talk today. So soccer can be toxic for many, many groups of people, not just people within the LGBT population, but it can be toxic for women or uh, Asians or people of color. Um, And so like, just as an example, so in the 2018, in the 2018, 2019 Premier League season, there was only one manager of color in the entire Premier League, right? So we're not we're not just talking about players. We're talking about we're talking about supporters. We're talking about people who want to be in management and leadership leadership positions. Um, and so in this article, John argues that there's a lot of great public relations campaigns and marketing supporting LGBT population. I know that. Um, and anyway, and so he argues that really little is truly being done to affect the culture of the game and the sport itself. And I know, so June is Pride Month, and so there are, especially here in the U.S., there are so many teams that are doing Pride scarves, Pride jerseys, pr- like different Pride night, like Pride-themed whatever it is. And like, that's all well and good, but like, I really wonder, like, what are they doing to actually make change within their team, within their institution? Um, So uh, let me wrap up what he said. And then, Liz, I definitely want to hear your thoughts. And then he further talks about soccer. And and he, you know, is coming from England. So just to give that context here, that... um, and, and I think European soccer has done this too, has really chosen to address racism before dealing with LGBT issues. And I think that's like a really interesting thing. And not to say, again, not to say that racism isn't a problem in soccer or in any sport, 
because it really is. Uh, but from his perspective, he sees uh, kind of the soccer community kind of compartmentalizing these different things and saying, okay, well, we're going to deal with racism. And once racism's finished, then we're going to deal with LGBT issues within, our, you know, within the soccer community. And so from like an intersectional perspective, I like reading this, I was like, oh my goodness, like my blood started to boil a little bit, especially <laughs> thinking about all the research that, you know, we've read in preparation for today. And from an intersectional perspective, you know, we recognize that there are all that all forms of discrimination are connected. So racism is connected with LGBT issues, and that's connected with income inequality and housing and food insecurity and so on and so on. And so all of these things are connected. And, and while, you know, certainly I don't think we can like fully address everything at once, I think it is a little disheartening that from his perspective, again, this was five years ago, so maybe things have changed. Um, I'm not entirely sure that they have. But, um, you know, prioritizing one thing over another. I don't know, Liz, what do you think about this? Yeah, it, it's, it's really hard because when you talk about it, it does sound like you're saying, and I'm not saying you are saying it or that I'm saying it, but it does sound like you're saying, well, I. it's nice that you have, you know, Pride Night, but what are you doing? And I mean, it's nice that you got in trouble because you said this racist thing, but what about the LGBT folks? And I don't want it to be exclusive like do you know what I mean it's another one of those things where I feel like it turns into this binary discussion because you're trying to get across so many points and you're trying to get them across in an informative and well-reasoned way and when you try to do that and when you do it successfully it comes across as very binary as this not that me not you and it, I don't think that it needs to be that I think that this is a time um time in this world, and, and this is something I got from the Barber research, that sports programs could really be the leader in researching inclusion policies. So their anti-bias training is across the board. Inclusion and non-discrimination policies are across the board. Everybody has them. Most businesses have them yearly. Like you take the same thing every year and they <laughs> never change it. They don't even change like the color of the background. It's just the same. And you can the same boring questions at the end. And it's just, it's very much lip service. And I think that this is a place where these programs could consider the physical, mental, and emotional health of participants, including player, staff, and fans um, in a very unique way because they are so incredibly interconnected like they aren't in your workplace like they aren't when you are a bus driver like they aren't when you do a thousand other things um, and they could be an industry leader in how do you implement policies to encourage real growth um, something that I really like that some companies have started to do is not only do you have your yearly training but they bring in somebody who goes I'm I'm trans and let's talk about that. And you're in a room with 150, you're in a room with a thousand people. Like you're in this big room. Ask me your uncomfortable question that you were afraid to come up to me in the hallway because I'm going to remember you because now you're in a sea of faces and you really just want an answer, but you know, it's an awkward question or write it down and let me talk about it. Like, I think that it's really great that they're making those possibilities available. And I think that the sports really have this opportunity because especially in some of um, the, the teams that are really close with 
uh, their fans. So they could really reach out and say, we're doing something with the players and the fans. We're doing something with the staff and the fans. Like you have this intersection of individuals who influence this game in so many different ways that I would really like to see sports programs start to look into how they could be industry leaders for best practices. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, And also, I know we've referenced it several times. It's probably our top-cited article of our conversation today. But the Cunningham article, like, it it just, I go right back to that. And I think, and I think you hit on a lot of it. So what does the overarching culture say? You know, I think uh, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, right, that I think in the last 10 years, in the last five years in the United States, and this is broadly speaking, but there's been much more representation of LGBT uh, plus folks who are um, in the media, who are in, um, you know, pr- more prominent places. And that's not to say that there still aren't issues because there are definitely issues. But I think the the level of consciousness has been increased and, and um, you know, has has risen. And so, so we have this cultural piece, right? That macro level. And then when we think the, the meso level, we think about these organizations and we can say, okay, what are individual sports clubs? What are, um, organizations such as the MLS or the, the football association, uh, in England, what are they doing to really address these issues at that level? But then what are these clubs doing? And then what are coaches doing? Like, you know, and, and I think Cunningham's piece really talks about this leadership perspective um, at the mezzo level and how that really can set the tone. Our coaches, um, when they hear things in the locker room or they hear rumors, do they, you know, of what's happening or, you know, and whether that has to do with racism or whether it has to do with LGBT stuff. And we'll talk a little bit about some action steps that we can all take in a little bit here. But um, our coaches, you know, our owners saying to, to coaches, to managers, this is zero tolerance. We do not put up with any of this. And if we hear any of it happening, like there are going to be consequences, right? And so setting that tone of saying we're not putting up with this, but also like, let's be supportive. Let's have a conversation. Um, I so, so I think those kinds of things are just, can be so important. Um, and so, so and, that's something that I thought about also. And it's definitely the framing of the conversation and the changing of the language. So one of the things that I looked at was just like, um, a sports history timeline of selected events. And they just go through like, you know, a hundred different things about this person came out or this person did this. This is the first um, gay Olympics, which they weren't allowed to call it the gay games because they got sued by the Olympics, whatever, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And so the thing that really struck me with this timeline, and I would like to say that I think that it's really important, the language that you choose Um like sexual inclusivity. It's a new word. It's a new phrase for me. And I plan to use it because I think it's much better than some things that have been used. Also, it makes me feel a lot less awkward that I'm forgetting somebody because I don't want to forget anybody. And I think people who know me know that I'm not trying to, but if you're part of one of those groups that I didn't list or that I just put like LGBTQ plus at the end, you're like, oh, okay, thanks. Like whoop-de-doo. Like again, it, it feels like a little bit of lip service. So I'm all for changing the language. Okay. So this history, to get back to my point, this history started in 1920. It took until 2000 for the language change from blah, 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 blah came out to openly gay player. Oh my and it was just like, it was just such a long period of time. A, I like, like, I hate the this player got attention because they were openly gay like come on but 
regardless, I think it was a positive note of that was that when they had this conversation, it wasn't this player was outed. It wasn't this player decided to come out. It was this is an openly gay player and they have national attention. So I just thought it was really interesting that it took that long for a headline to hit. And of course, this isn't everything that is on the timeline, but for this specific timeline that it was this, it would took that long for something to, to change the conversation. So being willing to change how you talk about things and the words that you use, I think is very important and something you should consider. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so uh, to kind of uh, wrap up before we get into some calls to action, which I think is, I'm really excited about this. And I think I got ahead um, of myself. I'm so sorry. Yes. Uh, so I want to just mention some notable LGBT soccer players. And again, this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch. Um, so I, I actually just want to talk about some notable folks from uh, the U.S. And I know we may have some international uh, listeners, so y'all can find your... <laughs> <laughs> find out who uh, uh, represents your country. Yeah, exactly. So um, so on the men's side, we have Robbie Rogers. So he played with LA Galaxy and LA Galaxy 2 and had 18 caps with the U.S. men's national team. Uh, David DeSoto played with Columbus Crew, Vancouver White Caps, and the Montreal Impact. And uh, Colin Martin actually is currently signed with um, Minnesota United, but is currently on loan with Hartford Athletic, which is in the USL Championship, which is the same um, group that our, uh, or the same league that uh, the team that Liz and I support uh, is in. So maybe, has Hartford come? Anyway, maybe we'll have to find him and get a picture or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, and then uh, on the women's side, so we know that the 2019 Women's World Cup is this summer, which is super exciting. Uh, so <laughs> I found, I was like, oh, like, it'd be really great to think about who are some openly gay or bisexual women who are playing. Um, and so I found, I couldn't find this, a piece specific to 2019 to this World Cup, but I did find a piece about the 2015 World Cup um, uh, from a uh, website called Gay Star News, which I appreciated that uh, title. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and they mentioned they listed 14 openly gay or bisexual women who were playing in the 2015 World Cup, um, which I think like that's incredible. Um, and so and I think, again, this like speaks to the fact that uh, it can be can be, uh, you know, big, bold italics there um, uh, easier or women can be more supported in being openly gay and being openly um, bisexual more so than than for men um so so anyway but i think there were there were two players on that list from uh the u.s so megan rapone who is my personal favorite uh u.s women's player um real quick did you see her her swimsuit like she is ripped beyond belief i know that they're soccer players (laughs) like i know that they're very muscular i know they're strong she is ripped i was i was in awe like her arm definition and her abs i was just i was blown away i was like i i feel like she could smoosh me with her little like her finger just boop oh my god done that's amazing i didn't see that so and strong then, and then abby wambach um which i think which i i had known about abby and i don't know i I don't pay attention to this as much as I should, maybe. Um, but both Megan and Abby are, they're both, I mean, they're both amazing soccer players. I know Abby has since retired, I believe. Um, but I think they're amazing soccer players, just kind of period, and role models for all aspiring players in the U.S., whether, you know, 
however you identify. Um, and so I, I think, think all of these players were. Oh, I like absolutely. You, like, yeah. Like you, you brought. I like that um, that this list was players who who were out and played. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. they were they were proud of who they were. They were playing with teams who accepted them. Um, they grew this community. They expanded the reach of. Oh, I know somebody and whatever I thought before, for whatever reason, doesn't matter because now I have a real life experience to make me more knowledgeable and most likely make me more accepting. Yeah, exactly. So um, our last section here, which I think um, is probably going to become one of my favorite sections, even though I love the research so much, but I think we can absorb all this research and then we need to say, okay, now what? What do we do with it now? Um, and so these are some of our call to actions that we have come up with. Uh, and so the first one is just having those difficult conversations. And I think we've talked about this a little bit, but um, having these difficult conversations is really an opportunity for education. And I know Liz, you had a couple thoughts on this one. Yeah, I mean, this is just, it's so important to me about how you have these discussions. So um, we talked about it. What you say matters. And and lots of people will, could become defensive and say, well, I didn't mean it that way. But that doesn't mean that you aren't creating a ne- negative climate, that this isn't something, that doesn't make it acceptable just because you didn't know. On the flip side of that coin, some people legitimately don't realize that the stuff that they just said is super offensive. And if you're going to be a person who is willing to start that conversation, I encourage you to always, always go into it assuming positive intent. And this is something that I learned from Josh. I am not as good at it as him. He is so (laughs) patient, which is why he can put up with me. But you should approach that conversation from a point of learning and just say, hey, that's something that we don't say, or that's not really acceptable. And here's why, in case they didn't know. If, if you're going to go into that conversation and you're going to go in at about a seven, which is my natural tendency, and be like, listen, not cool. And that's going to be the end of the conversation. It's not going to go anywhere. And then they're going to become super aggressive and be like, oh, that person is really mean. And so I don't have to listen to them. I assure you, if you start these conversations you will get to take yourself up to a seven when it is appropriate because not everyone is going to be willing to have a conversation. But in my experience, a great majority of people are willing to have the conversation and to learn. So if you could just assume positive intent, start the conversation, and on the flip, and you people who are saying, and, it, and it's me sometimes, sometimes I've said things and people have had to approach me. When I say something that is offensive, I need to be willing to actually listen to that person and learn why it is offensive. Um, I don't know. I go back to Barber. We both have our favorites of these research. Like <laughs> we, we had to limit what we read. The research talk, papers are very, very large. Um, but you just really need to empower your allies. Uh, so what they said, okay, her quote was, you need to incorporate skills, uh, trainings that empower allies to interpret, interrupt biased behavior and develop realistic goals for the allotted time of the program. So your allotted time may be a single game because you may not get to go to that many games or because the person that you had the discussion with may only be at that one game or your allotted time may be a whole season. So I think something that an example of that is 
our rainbow flag. Laura Ellen is a very enthusiastic <laughs> waver of our rainbow flag. If you watch any of the, the feeds you, for the river hounds, if it's waving, there is a like 95% chance it is Laura Ellen going crazy. I am not as good about waving the flag, but we always make sure that it's out. And if I see the, the rainbow flag, I make sure that it's hanging over the front of our section because I think it's important to show that we are a group that is inclusive. So um, you just you need to find the time to to learn how to interrupt bad behavior and realize what you can do with the time that you have. Absolutely, and I fully support raising the wave rainbow flag. We also <laughs> I have been thinking about this. I would like to get um, one of the trans flags um, also, but that's been on my to do list. Um, and I think something else when it comes to these conversations is sometimes we just need to shut up and listen. And I know that this is true of me. Um, I really enjoy talking, which is probably why I'm doing a podcast with you, Liz. We both enjoy talking. (laughs) Um, But if you're not a member of the LGBT plus community, listening to the experiences of others is often the best way to learn. And I know I have found that to be true. Um, and, And not to do this in a tokenistic way, not to say like, oh, well, you're gay, so you must be representative of the, of the entire gay community. No, 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 no. Um, but, but you know, really developing relationships with people and then humbly asking questions, humbly listening and saying, you know, and listening to what people de- deal with day in and day out um, can be really enlightening and you can really uh, learn um, a lot um, from that. And then that can help to, to better inform these conversations that we're having. But but again, sometimes you just need to stop talking. That's what I found. Sometimes you just have to, you just have to listen. Um, all right, Liz, let's move on to the next bullet point. Uh, and this is your bullet point. Uh, and so I'd love for you to share it with us. Sure. Um, you can't expect the LGBT athletes or fans or parents or anyone that you're surrounded with to act any differently than anyone else that you've encountered. So I think a lot of people expect people in the LGBT community to keep it on the DL. When you're walking with your significant other, you walk side by side, but you're not going to hold hands because that way it makes people less uncomfortable and it makes, you know, the transition easier to, to whatever. I don't know what that makes it easier for (laughs) to ignore it, I guess. And that's, that's, you know, more lip service. Like, oh, great. We have a rainbow flag. And that's all I want to know. Like, that's not enough. If you're out and about and you see a, a couple kissing and you wouldn't say anything to a heterosexual couple for that same action, don't say anything unless you're like, oh, those two are so cute. Or I wonder if they're newlyweds. Like, you know, Things that you would say to a heterosexual couple. Unless you're a very offensive person, like, then don't say it to anybody. Maybe, oh, there are so many disclaimers. Good Lord. <laughs> oh, on that same note, please note, I completely understand that as a supporter, I am saying things that I'm making fun of someone for. So when I am being a supporter and I'm trying to distract, especially my goalie, I will talk about how terrible his hair is. I will talk about how I am blinded by his kit. There is a song for that, guys. And I will sing it so loud. I will ask, who is your daddy and what does he do? Because it just kind of like rolls off the tongue. I don't know what movie that's a quote from, but I I think it's really funny because of how it rolls off the tongue. But you also have to be aware, you're in a setting where just because you're trying to get get under someone's skin doesn't mean you get to say 
whatever you want to get under their skin. There are some things that just really, they, they cross that line, they're unacceptable, they're going to be, un, like the line is going to be in different places for different groups, and so you have to acknowledge if you go to, you know, you go and sit with different supporters that's not your home team and you don't know what their standards are, if you cross that line, you have to be willing to acknowledge that you cross that line and learn from it. So I get that you're going to see me yelling about how funny someone runs and I'd be like oh my goodness you skipped leg day you can't kick a ball like all of these things that I wouldn't say to someone on the street but that doesn't mean I'm going to say oh my god that's so gay and I'm never going to accept it if I hear you say it so I I am fully acknowledging that it's very hard specifically in the supporter culture to to learn where those lines are and to grow as our society grows but I think it's a challenge that we can all accept and that we can all embrace and we should really work on that yeah absolutely and thank you you've Uh, got uh you've got important things to tell us yes uh, I so you know ways to support yes so, you know, we can talk about things and, you know, I think changing our behavior is really important, but you got to put your money where your mouth is. And we have two opportunities to put your money where your mouth is. So the first one I will talk to you about. And then the second one Liz is going to talk about because she got us involved in that, which I'm so excited about. Um, so the first thing we have is called Playing for Pride and that's at Playing for Pride on Twitter. And so there are over a hundred soccer players from across the MLS, the USL Championship, League One, League Two, and there are some international players. There are some women's teams players who have made pledges, um, to, uh, participate uh, throughout the month of June, so they may have pledged like $5 per goal or $1 per start or, you know, whatever it is. Each player's pledge is different to raise, raise money for playing for Pride. And so what you can do, you can, uh, they're still, people can still pledge. Um, so soccer players can still pledge. So you can encourage your favorite soccer player to donate. You can match the pledge of your favorite soccer player, which I think that's a great way to do it. Um, So make their donation go even further. And you can make your own pledge, which I think is super cool. Um, And so the Beautiful Game Network and Golden Goal Press, um, so we'll talk about Golden Goal Press in a bit, but they're working together to support playing for Pride. And so they have these beautiful Pride t-shirts. I ordered mine today. They're only $12 and all of the proceeds go to playing for Pride, which I think is really great. So we will include that link in the show notes um, and we will be sure to tweet that out also. Um, but this is just a one great way to just be super, you know, you get this beautiful t-shirt, but you also get to support um, playing for Pride. Now, Liz, tell us the second way that uh, people can put their money where their mouth is. So the second way you can do this is by participating in Pride Raiser for one of your local soccer team or your local supporters group. Um, Soccer Better is very happy to be participating. We are donating $10 per goal, per Riverhound goal, for the month of June to Proud Haven, which is a a, a local uh, shelter, good Lord, a local community that provides safe shelter for LGBTQI plus youth who experience homelessness or housing instability, specifically in Pittsburgh. And I know there are so many supporters groups participating in this and it gets 
dollars to local groups who are doing things within your communities. And I, I have to call this out. Detroit City is the bomb at this. They are, their fundraising is amazing. And I think Josh said that they were part of creating Pride Razor. I don't know. They are, in that, that group is incredible. I Like, we have Jam Jam who comes down to um, Riverhounds games. I know she goes to other games within USL Champions. I, championship and she's just she is so cool and she's so indicative of that group and I'm just so happy to know people there and I just I love being in awe of their their outreach and their ability and and the stuff that they've done but Pride Raiser has gotten uh it's gotten really amazing results I think they have over four thousand dollars total um per goal you know across the board if you go and you sign up you can keep track of how much your uh, supporters group has raised per goal. You can keep track of how much Pride Raiser the entire community has raised. They have a lot of really good information on there. Yeah, so those are two excellent opportunities uh, to put your money where your mouth is. And then we also um, have provided, you know, real things that you can do in your everyday life, but then especially when you are going um, to your local soccer team and supporting them um, and really um, be sure to do everything you can to support um, LGBT uh, athletes and fans um, and staff and, and everyone else. All right, Liz, why don't you take us out? All right, kids, here we go. Thanks to our sponsor, Golden Goal Press, the best choice for you to get custom shirts, hats, mugs, and other items for your organization, or maybe just because. Check out their amazing products at a fraction of the price of other places at goldengoldpress.com. Also, thanks again to Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier to MLS, USL, and US Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. We wouldn't be here without our lovely host, the Beautiful Game Network. BGN covers teams across MLS, USL Championship, USL League One, and they even have some EPL information for you. Check out their podcast and written content at bgn.fn. You can follow us personally via Twitter. We are at BGN Soccer Better. Head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pod- Pocket Casts. There are so many. The list will get longer. I'm sure of it. Or wherever you may listen to podcasts and push that subscribe button. If you're feeling generous, you can also go ahead and give us a review. We can't wait to learn more from all of you and to learn to soccer better together. <laughs>